0: Welcome to Season 3 of the Unscripted Medicine Podcast, a podcast by medical students who live and learn at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine.
1: On the show, we host a variety of discussions such as navigating the preclinical and clinical years, exploring humanism in medicine, and developing our physician identities outside of the textbook.
0: Check out the show notes or our website for more information, helpful links, resources, and more
2: please connect with us via email or on Twitter at unscripted underscore med. We would love to hear from you. We hope you enjoy the show.
0: Welcome back to the Unscripted podcast, everyone. This is your co-host, Mason. I'm joined here today by uh, my, uh, my fellow co-host, Alex. Say hi, Alex, if you would.
1: Hi, Alex.
0: And our special guest today, which will introduce themselves in just a moment, um, Kyler Wilson and Thomas O'Neill. We are talking today about the death of a patient, more specifically what it means to deal with dead or dying patients as a medical student on hospital teams or uh, clinic teams, just the things that you might come across as you go through your medical school journey. Just a warning, this is going to be maybe some heavier content than what you might be used to. So um, just be prepared for that. But uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's jump into it and introduce our guests. So, let's see, uh, randomly, Kyler. Kyler, do you want to go first and just talk,
2: introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's uh, Kyler Wilson, um, class twenty twenty three, um, and I want to go into family medicine. Awesome. Do you have a fun fact about yourself? Um, fun fact. Um, I my fiance taught me how to ride a bike for the first time last summer so Whoa. that's pretty new. now you just really <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so that's 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 new for me yeah <laughs> it's like a road bike or a mountain bike i'm just very curious just, just a bike like you know those like those rental bike stations <laughs> around the city. Um, yeah i never learned so it was it was a scary but fun experience so yeah <laughs>
0: so cool awesome and then uh, uh thomas do you want to talk about yourself a little bit
3: um, yeah, I'm I'm Thomas O'Neill. Uh, I'm also a third year and um, I'm interested in going into probably ENT. I always struggle with fun facts about myself. So I might, I might pass. well, I guess I used to, I used to cook in restaurants. And so I like to cook for fun. That's like my, that's like my thing away from medicine that I like to do. Oh man, that's incredible. What restaurants? Um, well, I started in high school at Bob Evans. Uh, so I was cooking the diner food. <laughs> Um, but then when I was in, um, I went to college at Loyola in Chicago, and I worked at a couple of restaurants and bars uh, throughout the city in Chicago. Um, I guess actually a side fun fact that I was bartending in Wrigleyville when the Cubs won the World Series. So that was awesome. Um, wow, I that's pretty there, cool. Yeah, it was, it was mm-hmm. a good time. Um, but I uh, worked under a chef at a farm to table restaurant called Uncommon Ground in Chicago, uh, kind of right by Loyola's campus.
1: Yeah, that sounds fun. I was about to say you have to have a fun fact. You talk about your gardening and like making pasta from scratch.
2: I was, was going to bring up the the hot take about the Sopranos being the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Most of my fun facts
2: just
1: make me sound
3: like I'm like sixty five years old, though. So that's
1: <laughs> still a fun fact. Not like nevertheless, but just kind of jumping right into it. Uh, since Thomas, you're the last one. To like introduce you yourself and your fun fact, we'll start with you. Do you mind sharing about your first experience, um, either before, or during uh, medical school, with um, death and patient who is dying?
3: Yeah, so before medical school, I took two years off, and um, I scribed at a outpatient pulmonary critical care and sleep office, and um, I worked for uh, directly for. Uh, one physician and she, so I was kind of employed directly by her. And so I really spent uh, a lot of my time directly interacting with her patients. And I kind of took on more of almost like a, you know, assistant role for her in a lot of ways. So we had a lot of patients that, you know, were very chronically ill and, um, you know, with the critical care uh, part of it. And we had one patient who basically come in every month. Um, He had CHF, chronic kidney disease, COPD, um, and he would always, he would always come in with, you know, in basically an acute exacerbation and, and, um, he was unable to breathe and, um, basically would always come in struggling. And it always really happened because, um, he would call his brother or be talking to his brother on the phone and his brother would notice that he was pretty winded. The brother would inevitably kind of drive over and, and make him make an appointment. And towards the end of my time there, really those appointments kind of ended up. Uh, him coming in and then us basically doing direct admit notes to the hospital because he really just needed to go and get aggressively diuresed and um, you know he we talked a lot about kind of of end-of-life care and and you know uh, dialysis and things and he was really resistant to dialysis and um, some of the other measures that that we kind of encouraged and one of the reasons he said you know people who go on dialysis die on dialysis and you know, in his case, he probably wasn't that far off from the truth. And so he kind of just, you know, would, would come in and, and we'd get the water off of him, or, you know, we'd send him to the hospital, to get the water off them. Of and then, you know, we'd see him again a month later. And, um, it really was just that kind of complex interplay between the heart failure, the chronic kidney disease, the lung disease, just, you know, it's a picture that I feel like we see not uncommonly, but so he, he, he started off and he was, you know, when I first met him, he was like one of those kind of classic crotchety old men that, you know, everybody was like, Oh, here he comes into the office. And, um, but he and I, like, I mean, more, more often than not, I ended up kind of wheeling him out to his car to the ambulance or whatever he was going to, to leave the office. And we ended up just getting pretty close. Um, And his brother who uh, regularly brought him in, you know, we, we always, chatted a lot. And, and so I became close to both him and his, his brother. The physician that I worked for during that time, she left about six months before I went to medical school. That patient was kind of absorbed by one of the other physicians. And, and I kind of made sure to stay on and, and see him when he was there. But I eventually went to medical school. And um, I remember I was an MSB. I was like, um, coming up from the gym or the cadaver lab. And I got a phone call from that area code. And um, it was the brother of the patient, letting me know that that patient had passed away. You know, he was basically just like, "You made a really big impact on his life, on our family's life." You know, you and Dr. Ortiz, which was the physician I worked for, really, really made an impact. And, and I wanted to let you know that he passed away, and um, we'd really be honored if you'd come to the funeral. I know you're in medical school, but we we just wanted to let you know if if you can't come, uh, we just at least wanted to let you know that. And I, I wasn't able to go to the funeral just because you know of our schedule first year but i kind of came away from that experience and i really had no idea how to deal with it i didn't really know how to handle that phone call i mean i really i was i was really touched and honored that he felt that it was important to get a hold of me because basically he would have had to call the office and you know i, I don't know how he got my number but it was probably a not an easy you know process and and but my kind of takeaway from that was i didn't really know how to how to grieve for this patient. Part of that was because at the time, especially as a first year medical student, I didn't really feel like I was a part of his treatment team. You know, I didn't really feel like he was my patient, so to speak. And I didn't really feel like I had any agency. And I think that's kind of a big takeaway from, you know, this whole point talking about this, but I I didn't learn this until probably third year, but if you're caring for a patient or if you're seeing a patient or if you're on a team that's seeing a patient, even if you're not pre-rounding on them or doing, you know, notes on them or whatever, um one of our psych uh lecturers just recently said this like the relationship is the medicine. And I really believe that. And if you so if, if you have a relationship and a meaningful interaction with a the patient, then I mean, you know, they're they're your patient and that relationship is a real relationship and you're allowed to grieve for those patients. And um you know, I wish I would have been a little bit more Uh, maybe introspective at that time, because I really never did, you know, allow myself to grieve for that patient for, for those reasons. And, you know, I still, I still definitely think about him from time to time. I feel like that was the first, you know, that first meaningful kind of interaction. And it, it has kind of shaped the way that I've, I've looked at, at the death of patients moving forward in third year, because I've tried to give myself a little more grace with, you know, being able to, have those feelings and feel like I, I have the right almost to have those feelings. And that's something I feel like we don't get a lot of third year, uh, just because sometimes it, it feels like we're not, for whatever reason, maybe we're not supposed to be there. or We're not, we don't have as much um, control over it or, you know, for whatever reason, but you know, I think it's important to allow yourself to, to have that.
1: Yeah. I want to thank you for being like vulnerable. And, you know, this whole conversation is, is not an easy one. We're asking you guys to have with us, but exactly what you were saying, like, it's not really talked about a lot. A lot of times, even physicians, I feel like don't really know how to handle, like, is it appropriate if I grieve? Am I too close to the patient? If I'm feeling like the need to grief and then just like questioning if you like overstepped a boundary with that relationship. And so um, I think like your takeaways, even though you said you weren't as reflective over it, it it appears when you're talking about it that you were. And um, (laughs) I hope that uh, students can kind of learn that from like your story, it is okay to grieve and it is okay to Allow yourself to be vulnerable and close to patients in that way, and that is part of medicine and part of healing. And seeing yourself as the like vessel of therapy.
0: Thomas, thank you so much for sharing. That was a that was a good story. Really, very impactful. I'm just, you know, reflecting on the fact that you were able to have this kind of longitudinal relationship with the patient for, you know, that amount of time. And I think going to one of your points about kind of how medical students might be perceived in like by the eyes of patients. I think it's very easy for medical students to see themselves as medical students and as a, a ancillary part of this team that serves a very minor role, but it's important to keep in your mind. And for those of you that haven't been into your third year yet, or are new to your third year, patients will see you as their doctors oftentimes. And it doesn't really matter to them if you're the medical student, the resident or the attending. If you're the person that's actually giving them the care, giving them the medicine, really giving them the time when they invest in you, just like this patient's brother who contacted you even, you know, months after you were into medical school even and uh, just kind of talked to you about, you know, the news of his brother. I think you really do play an impactful part in patients' lives and helping them through whatever process that they're at in the, their treatment or even their dying process um, really is significant.
1: It seems cliche because I feel like attendings always tell us. <laughs> and for um, listeners who are in their preclinical years, trust me, you'll be told this. But um that when they tell that med students are an important part of the team and a lot of the reason why we're such a big impact is the time we can dedicate to the patient. Like don't underestimate that you may know the patient probably a little bit better personally for the rest of your team. And that's your like role to play is to be that person. But Kyler, what about you? What was your first experience?
2: I think mine was um, during my IM rotation. I got on the team, uh, joined service, and this patient was already on the service and had been on the service um, for, I think, a couple weeks. So they they'd actually been through a couple different teams of doctors. And long story short, this patient had was um, had pretty bad cancer. Um, I think it. I think it was prostate cancer that metastasized and um, to the lungs, and was um, he was in the process of dying. So he, and when I say that, I mean he was in um, the the pathology quote unquote that was going to take his life had had manifested and was um, was doing it doing what it does. And so, you know, I joined. I never pre-rounded on this patient. Um, I never really once I joined service. He was asleep every time I saw him, um, but a, a, one of my clearest memories is every day on rounds, you know, we would see the list and we'd always save him for last because we knew when we went, it was going to be a long time outside this patient's room. And it was during COVID, was still was worse than it is now, and so he was COVID positive, so I wasn't allowed in the room. I could only look from the outside, and I just remember spending maybe like 20, 30 minutes every day, just like outside this one patient's room. And that's a lot. That's a long time for people who don't know to be outside a patient's room while rounding. And it would just be like every day. And the family would be there some days, a lot of times we would go. And then um, there would be a rapid called on him while we were in the room multiple times on different days. And so it would just be like, whoa. And this was like, I had done my surgery rotation before this, but I'd never done a lot of rounding before. So this was just like a weird experience. I didn't really know what to do. And it was just like a lot of like, dang. And then we would leave. And then we'd always talk about assessment and plan. and be like, there's nothing to do. Like, you know, it's just like, we're really just waiting almost. It was weird. It felt like we were just waiting for him to die. And that was like a weird um, like week and a half until he finally passed. And then once he passed, a new patient was admitted and they were assigned to me. And so then I went and they were in his room and so I, like i just walked up to the room and then like all the like almost like hours of time we'd spent in front of that room the rapids like it all just hit me and i was like wow like i, I kind of got a little mad cuz i was like this is his room like why are you here like that was like the first thought i had you know and it was like why why is there someone else here why are we just like acting like that didn't happen and we just like replaced him with like another sick person like some sort of like machine. It was, it was like a really weird feeling. And then afterwards, you know, clearly I checked myself. I wasn't like actually mad at the patient. I was more like mad at the system, but you know, <laughs> I saw the patient, whatever pre rounded did, did the whole medical student thing and left. And then like my team never really talked about it. I could definitely tell that the attending was the one who told us the news that he died. And I'd almost seemed kind of relieved, like, Ooh, cause you know, just kind of like a lot of rapids, a lot of um, he was a patient that required a lot of people power, a lot of time. And so from like a workflow perspective, it seemed as if, and the attendee didn't say this, but it seemed as if there was a burden that was lifted from not having to like logistically do that. But it was sad. And I think um, it just made me feel weird. I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, I don't like this. And it made me f- kind of feel like, I hope we do more than just kind of like churn through patients until they like die and then replace them, you know.
3: Kyler, I still have a a room on the eighth floor that every time I walk by I there's like only one patient that I ever imagined would be in that room and I've been in that room a bunch of times now and there's been other patients but it was so I know what you're saying it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing to say but it's um like almost imprints on you
2: yeah
0: totally yeah I was thank you so much for sharing that I think that's such an astute observation because it's very true how you know, talking about like the emotional investment that patients make in you, there's also an emotional investment you make in your patients to the point where you're even like associating this, this room in a hospital. This is this patient's room. And how can we just like ignore the fact that this patient was here for all of this time? And then, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. I guess we'll talk about this a little bit later on too, but I'm very curious, what did that, you said it was about like a week and a half that you were with this patient, I think going through this whole process. What were, what were the steps that were taken during that, that process of like this patient's diagnosis with prostate cancer and then ultimately um, dying over this, this period of time and like all these rapids being called too? I mean, that must have been really traumatic. I guess I'm just curious what was done from like the hospital standpoint and the, the family standpoint and um, did you talk to family or like interact with those, those people much
2: yeah. Um so the fact that covid was involved complicated it a little bit. Um so the family was not allowed to come for long periods of time and really only one of the children was allowed to come. Like one would come as a representative, we would talk to him and then he would leave. So that was kind of like a weird thing. Talking with him, he was very at peace with all of it and he was like, yeah, like you know like we understand he's old and like he's really sick and they were uh, but they for whatever reason for a while they didn't want to um like pull away any like life-sustaining treatment they still wanted to continue it and so it was kind of like a weird like they're at peace with it but maybe they just didn't understand the interesting thing about it was they eventually agreed and like that last like the last like three days of his life they wanted to move him to i think it's called the clc the part of the va that's more like a nursing home and less like a like a hospital um, but because of covid he had to be like negative to be able to move into that nursing home and so he finally part of it he was just in, up in the hospital because he we were waiting for him to be negative and after a while um when they would try to move him, he would code. So when they tried to like physically move him to that other part of the building, he would code. So like, okay, we can't move him. So then they put him back and they would try the next day and he would code again. And then they didn't, for whatever reason, they kept not pulling, like, they were like, we want the life-sustaining things. So it it was just like, it was like a really weird, like jumble. And it was hard to understand because, you know, I was at the very beginning of my third year. So I really, I was like, my medical knowledge was like, was like, very, I was like, I don't really know what's going on. So, and it's also like watching this, like, wow, this is so complex. But, like, looking from the outside, it was just like, it looked like some weird, like, abnormal, like, torture scene. Some sort of like, we're just gonna keep doing this and like prolonging this. And, like, the family's not enjoying this, the team's not enjoying this. This man certainly is not. And we're just kind of like, I don't know, I don't even know if that answered your question, but it was just like, it was just like a weird
0: scenario. I don't know, yeah, no, well, it, it definitely does. We'll, we'll talk about some of those, like, other like goals of care conversations and things like that going forward here. But yeah, it sounds like, anyway, Alex.
1: It sounds almost the way you describe it, kind of like the movie Groundhog's Day. And then it's like just one day you're out of it. And you're like, what, what happened? Like, this is not what we normally do. And I, there was something you said that I love your reflections about the whole story, but based on the attending, when you're saying there was, it almost seemed like there was a little like, guilt for being like, okay with the fact that this patient is now gone, but we have, look at all the resources we now have to like help other patients and kind of not only dealing with the grief of losing a patient, but also, you know, the shame for feeling a little guilty for all, for like being like relieved, whether it be on the sense of now we have more resources for others, or like you're saying it you were doing like this, the same song and dance. And you were just like, oh, I just want you to like die peacefully and not have to like constantly have rapids on. Cause for those who haven't like witnessed a rapid or like done CPR, like it's not like a gentle thing. It's very aggressive. It So you're just like hoping that they'll finally like be able to be at peace. So, yeah, I just was kind of thinking about that. I didn't know if you had thought about that anymore
2: I, I definitely think, and that was the thing. I think it,
1: the one thing that I
2: think I've learned in third year starting clinical things is the job does wear on you, you know? And so it's, it after a while, it, it would be like, if someone told you, you have to pick up this, this hundred pound weight every day and you have to carry it three miles and then drop it and then carry it back. And then if someone told you, Hey, today it's only 50, like a part of you would be like, Oh, like, okay, I don't have to carry as much weight today. You know, even though like, Um, What we're doing is like important work and it's work we signed up for. And sometimes I would like, the thought would come like, oh, like, why are you so happy that you don't have to do your job? Like do your job. Like your job is to take care of patients. Why are you so happy that you don't have to do it anymore? Part of it is like, it's just, it's stressful work and it weighs on you. And so I totally empathized with the attending. Like I wasn't in the attending's mind and I don't think attending meant to like convey a notion of like, I'm so glad that's over and we can forget about them. Like, you know, but it's just, I can totally, I it just felt like there was like a weight off.
3: I was just gonna say, Kyler, I, I definitely understand kind of what you're saying about, um, it feels almost like, well, we signed up for this, so we should be ready for, you know, anything that that the job entails. I think if we're being realistic with ourselves, there is a little bit of that that's true, right? We did sign up for this and we do, and we should be, prepared to deal with what's going on but not being able to be vulnerable and open about the you know real hardships that come along with this is part of what I think can lead to problems down the road yeah. and I think that being able to say yeah I did sign up for this but some of this is still really uh, heavy and still weighs on me and affects me I think is also okay and mm-hmm. I think we need to give each other that space and that empathy and, and stuff as we move forward. And I hope that the system continues to allow for that. And part of that is just having conversations like this. So, uh, you know, Alex Mason, thanks for giving a forum to speak about things like this, but I think that's a really kind of insightful point. Yeah, we,
1: we may have signed up for it, but we didn't know all the terms and conditions when signing up for it. But Mason, what about you? Ways
0: too. Yeah. Yeah. So Tyler, like you, uh, my first experience with a dying patient was on one of my first rotations. I was actually my pediatrics rotation at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. The first team I was assigned to, the first patient I was assigned to, I was on the neurocritical care team or the yellow team there. And um the the young boy that I was caring for, he had a congenital. Anomaly where he would develop these intracranial aneurysms that would just explode. So he basically had these strokes going all throughout his life from like age four till age eight was by the time that I saw him. And uh, when I was seeing him in the hospital, he had had a recurrent stroke and his, his status is just very decompensated. There were several rapid responses called on him during my time. One was called while we were rounding actually. The patient was not doing very well um, because of these things that were going on. And the question came up about his goals of care. What do we want for this patient? Do we want to keep doing rapid responses and um, escalate him to ICU status and put him on a ventilator? Or is going more peacefully a better solution for him? So we actually had a discussion with the family. We involved, we got, um, it was a combined discussion with family, palliative care, and then my team, and we met for about an hour one day and just kind of talked about what uh, the trajectory was going forward, what interventions we could implement, what comfort measures we can implement, and ultimately what the family wanted for the patient. And um, they actually decided to forgo care at that point. And so it was the morning after that discussion, I was presenting on the patient and the residents Uh, asked me if I wanted to present basically like the plan, like the palliative care slash hospice care uh, for this patient now. And I did. And yeah, it was very beautiful. Uh, A lot of tears were shed by me, the team, my attending, the family, obviously. Yeah. I think the thing I took away from it was, it was just a very beautiful experience kind of having in this context, anyway, it's not always going to be like that, but just kind of having that combined effort and discussion with the family and palliative care and really going towards the patient goals of care, even when things look very, very bleak, things can turn out pretty well, I think. Um, and then it was some time after that, that I got a message or I got a text message from the resident I was with at the time that's saying that the patient had passed away. And I think at that point I was probably on my next rotation, which I think was surgery. Kind of got hit with a double whammy there, uh being on the night shift for surgery and then also, oh, this patient that had a really sad story, he didn't make it. Like, well, that's okay. But I'm so, you know, I'm sad now. Like I feel for this, I feel for this kid, I feel for his family. I can't, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine going through something like that and having a loved one do that. I've had loved ones die before, but not in that way. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. I'm just glad that I was able to be part of the team during that time. I'm glad that we were able to really care for that child and with the resources that we had, but I also like understand that those resources aren't always available and that all the all the pieces don't really fit together super well during that time too. But I think that just gave me kind of a perspective of what does a good death look like
1: sometimes. Wow.
2: Thank you for sharing, man.
1: I just love your like telling of that and reflection, it, it kind of juxtaposes with the other two stories and kind of the beauty and kind of acceptance part of grieving that can come with it and doing that as a whole team and with the patient and the family and how that may look and be, and feel like therapeutic and okay to do that as well. Cause I feel like a lot of times it's like, is it okay if I shed a tear with the family? Is that, am I not being, you know, distanced enough? Um, Am I clouding my judgment? Yeah. I felt like my, my team was super
0: supportive with that too. Like really inviting me to talk to the family and present uh, on morning rounds the following day. And just uh, even like having discussions about it afterwards too, we met together for like a 30 minute discussion in the afternoon and we talked about the the whole thing and I I still talk to some of the residents on that team to this day about it, but yeah.
1: One of the reasons I love peds. <laughs> 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 um, I'm, I'm very grateful that you had a very supportive team during that time. Cause I feel like it could have been a completely different experience without that.
2: Mason, I am, I am. What's me about your story is that you, you, how central you were and they kind of boosted you into that space of like being the, almost the, I feel a lot of times if you present, you're almost like the face of the team in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. How How did that feel being kind of like in that position as like a medical student, like in one of your first rotations? It was
0: very surreal. It was very surreal because it was my first rotation, first patient, you know, first everything, new to third year and in the clinical setting, Sometimes it didn't feel like it was actually happening. Um, but I was very grateful to have that experience and to just to have the support that I had during that time. I think it made me realize at that point that you really do play a role in patient care, and it's not just glorified shadowing. the more the more investment you make and the more that your team allows you to make those investments, then, the better the end result is for for you, the team, the family, for everyone. So I think that's just a, a big message that I try to promote is um, to medical students and faculty and, and um, everyone involved in patient care that uh, we all really do play a big role in it.
1: I know we're going to talk about tips later, but I, I just can't wait to hear like your reflections and tips on coming away from that because I don't think a lot of medical students get that experience. And it's why um, as like residents and attendings, we like shy away. And I I don't know if anyone else has had this experience where sometimes when people have um, bad news that needs to be broken to them, like a uh, cancer diagnosis, especially one that's metastatic and a short time course to live, it seems like the responsibility gets bounced around a lot. So it's interesting as a medical student that you were able to get that experience that you're graduating soon. You're about to be an intern that you can like this patient's lit- that experience that patient's literally going to be with you for like the rest of your career. And it's going to help shape how you are.
0: So Alex, do you have, do you have a story that you would like to share?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um Like I, I was saying before we started recording, it's kind of a perfect timing because I'm in psych and we have like an assignment about reflecting, um, about a patient experience. And this was one for me. Um, so like Thomas, I also took, um, a gap year. I was an EMT throughout my undergrad and during my, uh, gap year before medical school. And I remember my first experience with death was during my EMT training. Um, cause it was like my first medical experience and, I remember it was like during EMT school, they used to joke that I was like the dark cloud. Cause like all these like really bad um, things would happen. Like kids being like poisoned and having like, a, like having to deal with that. And, and this week was just like particularly bad. My shifts, I had no like experience with how you're supposed to deal with it. Cause an EMT school, they don't really talk about it either. So my whole way of dealing with the intense things I might see in the in an emergency setting is kind of distance myself, build a wall, but for some reason the week had been rough, my wall had been like shattered or cracked down and I remember I was working an in like an inpatient in the actual ED shift. It was like a rainy day and I was like hoping it was going to be <laughs> slow and of course it was not and I was at a hospital in Tala- in Tallahassee. So it's like a trauma to level for like all of the panhandle and part of Georgia. So a wide mm-hmm. range of people. So someone got airlifted in, it was like a terrible accident because of the road conditions, like where they ran into like a semi truck. It was a young patient like intubated. They were doing CPR and it wasn't even my first time, you know, doing CPR, but it, it was just like, a mixture of things. And so I kind of at first was like excited, like, Oh, I'm going to practice my CPR. And I started doing CPR and had always heard from people like, Oh, when you're doing CPR um, sometimes the ribs will give and it will make it easier because um, you're just to get quality compression. Sometimes that's what you need to do. And I remember being like so focused on like watching the rhythm, making sure I'm like getting, good rhythm, good depth, like everything I can to like save this patient and the trauma bay in general is just like chaotic and it happened to me when I was doing CPR and like the ribs cracked and for some reason it like snapped me out of like watching the monitor and like actually observing what was kind of going on and it it was a lot for me. It was I remember like vividly like and this is now like almost like Six years ago (laughs) for me, but like hearing the suction, you can like smell blood, like the blood. If there's a lot of it, it's like, you can smell like the iron in it. And I don't know. I just remember like being wafted with it. This seeing like their their abdomen, like super distended, discolored, hard, like chest tubes, almost like violently, like being put in and just being like, what is going on? I think I was holding it together like well enough then. And then something the attending did that no attending had ever done before. It was a new attending in the ED. Once he like called it, um, we had been doing CPR for a long time and like trying everything. And he had us take like a moment of silence for this patient. And I think that kind of is like my tipping point. And then he would say, he like reflected like like almost taking this patient and like making them into an actual human which i feel like sometimes we may not see patients in that way when we have to do difficult things just to make it easier for us but it was like this person was someone's son this person was someone's like loved one someone's dad it was it was a lot i think <laughs> for me it's a lot now even like thinking that like Qualifying like a life, life has been lost today. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on the life that could have been, the life that was. It was just a lot for me. <laughs> that was my first experience. Um, I think it really taught me reflecting in that moment. I was like, "This is why I build my walls, <laughs> so I never have to like feel like this and like go home and like like cry and be like." I don't know if I can do the rest of EMT school and like, maybe medicine's not right for me, but I think it's allowed me to be a lot more vulnerable with patients and be more okay with being a little uncomfortable with like having certain conversations or like discussing certain topics. So yeah, that was my, my first experience. It was it was an interesting one. It was a a tough one, at least for me personally.
0: <laughs> oh, Alex, thank you so much for sharing that. I recently did the the getting ready for residency course for fourth year, and during that you do like CPR on dummies, and uh, it's always you know every time you do CPR you re- you have to remember like the ribs might break, and I just I have not had the opportunity to do CPR on somebody yet, like in real life, and I. I don't know. I'm scared. I am scared for that moment. Like when you're doing those chest compressions and the ribs break and the fact that, that you're in that situation and just the way you painted that picture of like, you know, smelling blood and like how vividly that impacted you back then. is just, wow, what a, what a thing to go through, but no, I really appreciate your reflections, especially the fact that uh, you attending kind of just like gave time and space to recognize that it's a human in front of you. I think is like so important somebody who mattered to somebody else and somebody who had a life and um a legacy
2: even thank you for sharing alex that sounds very formative and hard to go through for sure i think um yeah i really appreciate your vulnerability that would be really hard
1: thank you guys <laughs> i feel real <laughs> comfortable to share all this <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I almost
3: uh, keep forgetting that this is going to be posted somewhere. I feel like we're just having you, uh, a little like fireside chat here. <laughs> yeah.
1: like <laughs> for a different series.
0: <laughs> and then Alex, one thing I wanted to ask you about that, I think it kind of goes into the next part of this whole discussion too, is kind of like coping skills. Like, I guess for like this situation that you were in, I mean, it sounded traumatic, yeah. So how do you how did you and how do you now like kind of go forward from that? And how do you reflect on it in either in a constructive or maybe even like destructive ways? I mean, like how do, how is it impacting you to this day and like what do you do?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Um I feel like everyone knows like good coping skills, like exercise, talk to someone. I think reflecting on it and like talking about it with peers and it's why it's so helpful to have you know, peers who are in the medical field where you can like call up on a bad day and be like, listen, this happened. I need someone who understands the medical field to like, listen to me. And the person doesn't even have to be in the medical field. So uh, I went home and I think I I talked about it with my then boyfriend, now husband, um, (laughs) about the scenario or like as much, you know, hip HIPAA Mm -hmm. with respecting that, that I could about like it being a bad day and just having someone like listen to you. And then I had like mentors, like my EMT instructor, he was willing to like, listen to me about it. I think that really helped reflecting on it. I felt a sense of like collectivism with us, like stopping to recognize this person, just the feeling that you're not alone I felt like was good, whether it was talking to people or just reflecting about it. But I think it was just like for me throughout the years while I was like developing coping skills for this kind of thing, because I feel like it's a different skill to cope with this versus like problems in a relationship or something like that. I just were reflecting on it every now and then and thinking like not being guilty, like, oh, we, I think it helped. We did everything we could. And so like, I didn't have any additional like guilt or shame for it. And then I think it it just kind of changes your mindset after that, about seeing like all patients that way. And it allows coping to be easier because I stopped building up such a a wall. <laughs> so it wasn't so like traumatic and like, oh my gosh, when it, Uh, something happened, which I think helped. (laughs) But I feel like we've all been through something that has been or could be stressful. Does anyone else have any like go-to coping mechanisms they do to deal with like stresses with, it could be outside of medical things, but particularly like patient interactions.
3: Well, Alex, I think one thing that was kind of important in your story and, and Mason also in yours was how, like how much the team and the attending matters. The the and I think it's something to think about as we keep going because, like Mason, you're about to be an intern and we're about to be fourth years, which is kind of wild. But um, it's like when I was starting off in third year, I looked up to my AIs, my fourth years, and to the interns and the residents, and like you know all the way up the yeah. all the way up the chain. And I think it, like, it starts, it, it, it's, it shows how important it is to have, like, that leadership and opening these conversations. Because if the conversations don't start from a resident or an attending, no, no third-year medical student is going to be like, let's all take 20 <laughs> minutes and reflect on this. And <laughs> like, why don't we stop rounds for a minute? And, like, you know, I mean, it's just not going to happen. So um, I think that's kind of important to, to stop and reflect on.
1: Yeah, I also want to encourage cuz I I know it's tough and I don't think I would have even as a third year like stopped but I do want to encourage if you feel comfortable with like a resident or an attending to to actually do that if you need a second like tell them like hey I know we're yeah. busy right now but at the end of the shift could I can we like debrief about that? Like I just had I have some questions about it. Like I it just didn't sit right with me. I've done it with like non like death of a patient things, which help. Um, but just know that at least here I you see, I feel like the residents tend to be okay and willing to like stop with you and be like, Yeah, that was tough for me as well. So
0: I think that's such a a great point, Thomas and uh, Alex also just, I think when we think about coping skills, my mind automatically goes to how do you cope as an individual, you know, like exercise and sleep, and I'm going to watch a Netflix show tonight and all these other things that you do like individually, but ultimately that can only build your wall, you know, necessarily like so high and eventually it comes crashing down. And then I think that leads to a lot of burnout too. So I think like the focus on like collective coping like having those discussions and and really setting aside time and like discussing as a group like hey maybe this is a good thing to debrief on and to check in with each other about I think that's so powerful
3: I also think uh a huge plug for well we're all we're all skipping over it, but the exercise and the sleep and the everything yeah. that's all super important
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so important we're
3: all like, oh well, of course we know that but how often are we just like not doing that? Like not sleeping well, not like, you know, (laughs) skipping the gym or doing something, you know, it's like that stuff's important. And I also would make a plug. I feel like I say this as as often as I can, like I went to therapy for a long time um, during medical school when I've struggled and um, it's been hard during third year. I think it's hard because it's hard to, one, it's hard to say out loud, like, hey, I'm going to therapy, even though we're in the medical field, I'm in my psych rotation. I'm literally like in, engaged in therapy with patients, um, but it still feels somehow like we're, you know, you're not allowed to say that. And um, so I just feel like the more that we can all uh, like admit that we need to do these things and take the time to do them. Um, so I'm a huge proponent for therapy. And I think, um, you know, everybody, everybody who who is questioning whether or not they should do it should at least, you know, try it. Because I think it is a huge a huge tool in our tool belt. And I mean, it's time consuming, but so is going to the gym or, right. uh, you know, doing any of the other things that we, we do. And I, I am a proponent for working out, but sometimes I'll, I'll go and I'll try to work out. And then you're, I'm just like, my mind's not right. And you realize it's can only go so far. You know, you do need to get your, your mental health in order, in order to do the rest of that stuff. So, um, I just, I wanted a quick plug for that. Oops, absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry if
0: it felt like I was I was putting down these these other coping things. Oh so no, not at all.
2: Okay, good. So important. No, I okay. could not survive without therapy and runs and yeah. No, Thomas, man, I'm right there with you. I think one and this isn't even. I didn't even get this advice during clinical years, but um, for those of you who don't know, I don't know how you couldn't know who Dr. Pandy is, but she's amazing. The like <laughs> academic support person, but um, she one thing she told me during like step studying, she was like, Kyler, you have to be gentle with yourself and you have to be kind to yourself. And I had never heard, I'd never thought of the concept of being gentle towards oneself, like that, that there's like a self, you have a relationship with yourself. Like I'd never heard that before. Um, because like relationships are between two entities. You can't have a relationship with one, but you can. And I think all of this kind of gets at that. Like, I feel like a lot of times, especially in medicine, we're kind of like, will yourself to do this, like beat the horse and it'll go, like do X and Y will happen. And it's very much, it's like, yeah, but like sometimes like you do X and Y doesn't happen. And if that's happening, then you got to like pause, like at the gym thing. Sometimes I try to work out and then there's nothing. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, something's up. I need to check in with myself.
1: I love all the advice. UC has, please reach out to Dr. Malosh if you need, this will be like a disclaimer. If you need any connection to wellness or therapy as you see students you can get free therapy for like x amount of sessions please if you need it please there, there are people to talk to there are, are faculty that are willing to listen to you so you're not alone
0: Tyler, thanks for sharing that i think i if i was as mean to other people as i am to myself i would just no one would talk to me. I would just be completely <laughs> isolated. Uh, yeah. That's such a good reminder. Is there any other topic that people wanted to touch on before we kind of like wrap things up here? Um, so Tyler, I w- Thomas, do either of you have any other, other tips besides just like these, these coping skills that we've talked about in dealing with dying patients?
2: Um, I would say real quick, this just popped in my head. Um, so on ob um i had a this was on night shift there was a lady who came in who had a miscarriage and i think um i think i didn't go in to that um i did with a little bit like hey this might be heavy for her i think a lot of the culture uh, was that like hey this isn't a big deal or like whatever um but i went in and, and like i walked in the room and she was like crying and i was like 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 that um death and dying can apply to scenarios where you or other people might not consider it to be as traumatic as it is for the patient or the patient might not consider it as traumatic as it is to you so it goes both ways and i think just um again that like checking in with yourself thing is important some people are like you know like it, it was like it was a trisomy like you know that wasn't gonna you know like stuff like that and it's just kind of like well no like if if it's conceptualized as like a traumatic you know thing for that person then that's that's how you I wanted, that's how I addressed it. It's an excellent reminder. Sometimes death
0: in some instances can become so routine almost. And it's it's so important to remind yourself of the humanity that exists there and what's the perspective of the patient is too.
3: I definitely have one uh, last plug, and it's kind of um, about UC in general. I think coming up to it, like, in the second year, I started to think of things in terms of step, like, is this about step or is it not? And if it's not, then I need to not put so much focus on this, which I will just say for our preclinical colleagues, that, that is not the right way to think about it. Because what they really mean when they say, oh, this won't be on the test, is they really mean you won't learn this anywhere else. And I think it's really important to like actually focus on those lectures. Um, but one of those is an experience third year. The, um the death of a patient seminar, which Kyler, Alex, and I were all uh, in a group for, and I was on my surgery rotation, and I was like buried in world questions and had not even gotten close to scratching the surface. I was on my trauma surgery rotation, and I had done a night shift, um, and this is, I just want to say, I have talked to a lot of other people who have done the trauma surgery service, and they loved it. And so this is in no way a a condemnation of trauma surgery service. I just happened to realize that I am not a trauma surgeon and uh, I was uh, not prepared for this. Um, But I had one night where I basically just like a patient that I had been following for a long time coded while I was in the emergency, when I was like in the shrew, stitching someone up and I ran upstairs and uh, I got there and the patient had already died um, and everybody was leaving. and then you know, we, we got a page and we went to another surgery and, and then, you know, 3am I was asleep and I woke up and, uh, in the med student on call room and ran to the ED. We ended up going to the surgery, the patient, you know, I don't, I don't think that that patient ended up making it uh, a couple days later. And then in the morning, it was like 7am and this patient came in and she had, it was an attempted suicide and she was like posturing, like we had learned about in B B, And I, did not even, I never really understood what it meant. And I saw it and I just remember being like, I, I can't do this. Like I need to go home. I still have three hours left of my shift. So till, till 10, it was a like one of the 30 hour call shifts. And I was just like, so exhausted. Um, and then someone texted me about this, like, Hey, do you know anything about this death of a patient seminar? Like it's, uh, it's in it like a couple days, like, what are we doing? And I, I just was like, you have to be kidding me. Like, this is, I, I don't have time for this. I don't know, I, you know, and I went and I I just unloaded that whole story in, you know, it was on my whole LC and I like, I cried. I was, it was a very emotional time. Um, but the, that whole seminar was so important for the validation of the feelings I had from that shift and from a lot of other things that happened in third year. And I went into it initially, like, are you kidding? I have you world to do. I had this, you know, terrible experience. Like I, I'm not this. I don't have time for this, basically. And I think it was probably one of the more important things that I did third year. Um, so shout out to Dr. Kelleher and, and um, you know everyone who put that together. So taking advantage of some of the programming that we have here is, is really important. So that's that's my really long-winded way of saying that would be a good is one of my tips is take advantage of some of that programming go into it with a good mindset because they are doing a really good job of trying to teach us some of those almost unteachable skills and they are having those conversations you know so go kind of try to embrace it and and you know be be open to those experiences because I was not always
2: I love that nervous. tip
3: amazing and that leads us to the end
0: of uh, our session today thank you both for joining on the podcast and for sharing your stories and just allowing yourselves to both be so vulnerable and talk about such a sensitive topic, and uh, I mean, I hope that the listeners really gain a lot from it. I think that the stories and insights shared here today can really benefit a lot of people. Alex, do you want to close this out?
1: Yeah. So once again, thank you guys for being on the show and talking about this, and both talking about vulnerable things. And I feel like it was more upbeat than I was expecting with some laughs in there. So I appreciate it. Uh, Do you guys have any social media that you want to share with the listeners ways for they, where they can like get connected with you guys. You can also say no and say, Hey, application season's coming up. No one can have access to my social media.
2: (laughs) Oh, I mean, they can look me up. Uh, I don't know how many Kyler Wilson's there are in the world. I, I don't remember my handle off the top of my head. I think it's literally just my name. So K Y L E R wilson it's it's in there somewhere yeah
1: we'll put it in the show notes <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>
2: i um i have a, a med twitter
3: uh quote unquote but i have not used it in probably 10 or 12 months so it's probably not that effective but um i will say i'll, I'll give i think alex has both um but i'll i'll give um any of the m1s or m2s or even my fellow um m3s uh Alex, I don't know if you can do this, but put my like email or phone number in the show notes. And if people want to contact me, um, I don't know how much good advice I've got, but if I've got any, I'm willing to share it with the M1s and M2s. Um, it's like we're in a crazy process, you know. This whole this whole process is is very strange and can be very isolating. So um, if you contact me on Twitter, I probably won't see it for another twelve months. But feel free to email or, or text me or call me.
2: Yeah, you can. If you guys could do the same for me too, whatever I got, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give.
1: Yeah, of course. We'll do emails so you guys aren't having your phones <laughs> blow up by strangers who also can listen to this podcast. Oh
2: um, sure. Sure. <laughs> oh smart. Yeah, that'd be weird.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but once again, thank you guys. We really enjoyed talking to you. Um, yeah, thank, thank you, you very so much.
2: much.